Welcome. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well. Conversation with creative people who have a lot to say. It's alive. It's alive. What is that? It's the title of a book, a fabulous work of historical fiction by Julian David Stone. And it's a story that takes place in Hollywood in the summer of 1931. The central character is Carl Jr. Lemley heading up all movie productions for Universal Pictures and having just come off the mega success of Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi. It's Junior's dream to do the story of Frankenstein. Carl has a lot of challenges to contend with, not the least of which is his legendary father, the founder of Universal Studios, Carl Lemley Sr. For fans of movies, what goes on behind the scenes in Hollywood, and of course, like me, you're enamored with the Universal monsters, particularly of the 1930s and 40s, this book is for you. It's alive. <laughs> and joining us now is the author, Julian David Stone. And we're about to take another adventure together as we all go on mic. All right, uh, Julian, I am so excited. I'm excited about every interview, but this one really got me excited because um, I love the book, I love the topic, and I am a monster kid. Are you a monster kid? I most certainly am, uh, <laughs> proudly. A proud monster kid. What is a definition for those who don't know what the heck we're talking about? Sure. First of all, thank you for having me on. It's exciting to be on here and talking. Um, a monster kid, in my definition, are the generation that, that grew up in the 60s and the 70s when there was sort of a revival of these classic horror films from the 30s. And to me, they're inexplicably, or is that the word? I don't know if it's inexplicably, but <laughs> that word in that area linked to uh, the Aurora model kits. And I had every one magazine. of them. I sort of, yep. Every so one I. of them. So I, I sort of see them as all part of the, the definition of a monster kit. I'm sure there's people who came along much later and into this fandom that would also call themselves monster kids. But that's what I sort of, I feel the kinship, particularly to the late 60s, early 70s, people who you know, rediscovered them with those other things, uh, you know, on television and started watching them when we, we were kids. Well, the book is called It's Alive, which might be the most famous quote from the great movie Frankenstein, right? Colin Clive, the mad doctor. And and Mel Brooks borrowed it so brilliantly in Young Frankenstein, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, this is a story about the making of the film. And uh, there's a lot going on here that we'll get into. You are uh, a very astute historian. I'm going to give you credit right off the bat. Thank you. That's that's very nice of you to say. Because anybody who knows Carl Lemley and Carl Lemley Jr. right off the bat gets two stars, and then there's more <laughs> stars to be earned. So let's explore this story, and I, I'm going to ask you some questions. It won't give anything away because there's a lot of twists and turns. This is Universal Studios, 19, late 20s, early 30s, and they make the move to, to develop Dracula, which is a huge hit. But it's it's not as easy as all that, just making one after another, is it? No, it's not. And in particular, Dracula was the first of the cycle, even though my film deals with the making of Frankenstein. But nobody, nobody in Hollywood wanted to make these films. And it was particularly, as you were talking about the Lemleys, it was Carl Lemley Jr., or Jr., as he was known, who was running the studio as a 21-year-old, who was passionate about these movies, and he really staked quite a bit on it. And fortunately for all of us monster kids, the, you know, they were hits and launched this wonderful cycle. And 
he you know so much of he he's the main character in in my story i i tell the story as you said of the making of frankenstein and i tell it from the point of view of junior lemley uh, uh, boris karloff and bella lugosi and it's about the interplay between the three of them but the the character who i sort of feel mm -hmm. is my main character and i feel sort of a kinship with was junior lemley because as you mentioned people don't really know him and he's the one responsible for all these wonderful films being made Right. And Julian, it's really the story of a son and a father coming to grips with the fact that the father doesn't want to give up the reins. Carl Lemley Sr., let's start with him. Uh, he creates Universal, at actually the only city that a studio actually owned, Universal Studios City and all that. He's a pioneer, right? 25 years earlier. Oh, absolutely. He, he He's another fascinating character. He's so different than the other studio heads from their time. Because so many of them sort of came came from the street, the other studio heads and heads and sort of fought their way up. And the thing that I found really fascinating about Carl Lemley Sr. was he was successful kind of at every state, every part of his life. He was he, he was born in Germany, had a very nice middle class upbringing, but felt the need to come to America, which normally the people who were coming then were having a tougher time and were looking for an opportunity. So he comes to America and then by his early 40s. He's got this very good life in Wisconsin. He's kind of a pillar of the community in uh, Oshkosh. And once again, he sort of seems to have this restlessness and he decides all of a sudden, even though he's got a family, everything's great, he's going to go into the film business. And he goes into it and he is absolutely a pioneer. He, he creates so many of the things that we know today, including Universal Studios. And one of the funny things I love to tell people, the studio was founded in 1915, as you said, out here is Universal City. And when did the first tours of the studio begin? 1950. <laughs> he just he just knew every single way to sort of take advantage of this thing. He was a real a real showman. Was he avuncular? They called him Uncle Carl. Was he a, a, a fun guy to hang around with if you didn't cross him? He that's another thing about him. Everybody seemed to have nothing but great things to say about him, where some of the other studio mm. heads you know, they were known for being particularly tough. And there's no question he had to be incredibly tough because he took on Edison and defeated Edison before. And, and really for everybody, that, that's a whole other story. But before he even got to the, you know, the whole setup of Universal um, Studios, uh, he seemed to have been a very lovable character. And and you, I have never really heard stories like you said he had to be tough, a tough SOB to do what he did, but you never hear those stories mm. about him. He just comes across as everybody's Uncle Carl. The way you paint the picture, the relationship between father and son, I mean, he's a wonderkind uh, junior, and and he's desperate to be named, you know, vice president creative, etc. And there's that push-pull throughout much of the book, and that's real life. What more did we learn when you did the research about the relationship between the two? Well, they, you know, like any father and son, they had a complicated relationship. You know, Junior was very unusual. He, uh, you know, he wanted to go right into the film business and he was running Universal at the age of 21, which is exceedingly young, even even in Hollywood. And he wanted to make different films than his father made. He wanted to change the studio that was very successful. And that's where a lot of their tension came from. Uh, Junior wanted to make more sophisticated films than his father had. Universal in the 20s had become known for a lot of Westerns. They made some big films, but they were mostly known for Westerns that and, and lower budget films that tended to play for more rural areas. 
and Junior came in and immediately wanted to make less films and spend more on mm. each one of them and make different material. And, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein and the whole monster cycle were, were part of that. And the other thing you talk about their relationship, just as a writer, that was kind of one of the things that excited me about it, that, you know, ultimately, what is Frankenstein but a father and son story? It's a creator not pleased with his creation. Well, Carl Sr. and Carl Jr., obviously, I, I found a parallel there because they had a lot of friction and, you know, Carl Sr. created Carl Jr. and he didn't necessarily do the things that, you know, uh, that he wanted him to do. It's so interesting, uh, as I'm reading this wonderfully written book by our guest, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking about all the generational differences, music, movies, trends, clothes, whatever it might be. The father, Carl Lemley Sr., Uncle Carl, is looking at movies like Frankenstein and Dracula and thinking, oh, Drech, why would we want anybody to, why would anybody want to go see that and be disgusted and so forth? Well, his son is the upstart. His son is the rebel who wants to let it all hang out. And, of course, compared to today, it's it's mild. But that was an interesting paradigm that I noticed throughout. Yeah, you know, they are, they're from such different times. I mean, his father was born in the 1880s. Junior is born, you know, 20, 30 years later, but he's he's almost a jazz baby. If you that was the other thing is that I looked deeper into researching him. He, you know, in interviews, uh, Junior Lemley speaks very much, you know, the lingo of the 20s. And I thought that that was just really exciting as a character and, and so different than his father. They were just from such different times. Obviously, Junior was born in America, so he didn't know anything of the older country, the, the way that his father had had started, and they just had different ideas of the type of films that they thought the studio should make. There's the story of Dracula, which has to begin uh, here, because we need to know what happens with Dracula, with Bela Lugosi, Bela Lugosi and how he transitions uh, away from Frankenstein. But taking on Dracula was a risk, and actually, he was not the original uh, desired actor to play Dracula. I believe it was Lon Chaney, right, who got ill? Yeah, that that is correct. When when Universal uh, got the rights to the book after everybody else in town passed and mm. didn't want to do it, thought it was dark material that nobody would want to see. They initially wanted, uh, you know, Lon Chaney Sr. to be to be in it. You know, uh, Lon Chaney Sr. had a relationship with Universal. He had done Hunchback for them and had done other films. In fact, his career had started there before he left and and worked at other studios, so they wanted to bring him back. They were going to have Todd Browning, who had made a lot of films with Lon Chaney, direct it, and it was going to be this big Lon Chaney vehicle, and then unfortunately he passed away right before the beginning of production, and that's where they scrambled, and fortunately for all of us, it landed on Bella Lugosi. Well, Bella had played the part on Broadway, right? He was a stage actor, obviously originally from, uh, what, Hungary, I guess? Is that where he's from? Hung Hungary and then uh, Germany and then eventually America. Right. But he played the role so many times. Did they really have a, an issue, though, with the fact that he didn't speak very uh, fluent English or he spoke it with a very heavy accent, as we all know? Yeah, that was a problem. Um, you know, it's ironic because it was such a hit on Broadway <laughs> with him, but they didn't want him for the movie. He wasn't a star, you know, besides the the accent, which is so ironic since that's becoming whenever anybody says Dracula, they do Bella Lugosi, you know, which was exactly the thing the studio was scared by at the time. But they, you know, it was also that he wasn't well known. And Lon Chaney was a proven box office star, particularly with this type of, you know, mm. closer to this type of material. 
So no, they most, you know, surely didn't want him. Lon Chaney, or uh, excuse me, Bell Lugosi used to say that they tried to cast everybody and their dog before they gave huh. the role to, to him. And he becomes an overnight sensation. The women go gaga over him. They swoon and faint, and, and people are frightened, of course. I just rewatched it the other night because I wanted to chat with you about that and Frankenstein. And, you know, he does command the screen, and the way they light his eyes is just so perfect in black and white. Uh, it's just fantastic. Right. It, it's hard to imagine anybody, literally anybody else playing that role when everything that we think of as Dracula and a vampire comes from him, his performance yeah. in that film. But that also was a detriment to his moving along in his career because he was so well known for that role. But he would have been, as you point out in the book, and again, it's a historical fiction, it's called It's Alive. He would have been and was considered the top choice to play the monster in Frankenstein. We should stop here for a second. And for, I, I hate to even say this, but Frankenstein is not the name of the monster. It's the doctor. <laughs> How many times do we have to explain that, Julian? <laughs> I know. I, you know, I... I uh, I, you know, I assume you're you're well versed in the, the universal cycle. You know, in Son of Frankenstein, they address the issue of that. Yeah, they, they literally say that in the setup of the movie because it's synonymous. You know, now um, th that is absolutely true. You know, my, my book is historical fiction, but it's based as much as possible on facts. In fact, in the book, I have quotes that are throughout it uh, uh, from newspapers, and those are all real quotes. I didn't make any of those uh. up, just showing. The back and forth, because originally once uh, once Dracula was a hit and they wanted to make Frankenstein, they were going to cast Lugosi. And it was announced that he was going to be the monster. And that's where things get complicated. He goes in and out of playing the part um, with it a lot of back and forth. And there's evidence, which is what I use to tell my story, that the, the final decision ultimately came down to within the last few days before the beginning of Frankenstein, the production of Frankenstein, as to who exactly would play the monster, yeah. whether it would be Bella or Boris Karloff. Now, Dracula is a huge moneymaker. It's a huge hit. So <laughs> it, it makes sense that Junior wanted to follow that up with another classic, in this case, Frankenstein. The choice of directors is interesting. We all, well, not we, I keep saying we, like like you and I are representing the entire population of America. No, few of us know that it was James Whale ultimately and the right man for the job, no question about it. But the idea that he saw Karloff in the commissary, is that something you researched? Is that true? Oh, yeah. No, that that's based on several accounts. You know, the the, the story, like anything, sort of has a couple of different versions of it, but that one is the most commonly told one that uh Karloff was there shooting another film in the uh, commissary and Whale had just been put in charge of directing Frankenstein and they were looking for somebody to play the monster and he saw him there and asked him to to audition uh to try out for the role and the quote that you know Boris would always say was you know he was thrilled to have a director asking him uh you know to try out but he felt a little bad because he was dressed rather dapper that day for the film he was shooting and you know, this reaction of this director is, oh, you're perfect to play a monster. So <laughs> there was that part of it, too. But that that is the story that he was discovered by uh, Whale in and, the commissary. And it's so interesting to to read about how Bela Lugosi goes back and forth and says, I will not play a monster. No one wants to see right. a man grunting. And then, of course, he uh, changes his mind when he sees the attention and gets a feeling that this could be the, the one. In fact, you talk about the movie The Murder in the Rue Morgue, Murders in the Rue Morgue which was sort of a, an, it sounded like an afterthought, even though it was a, an actual film. 
to uh, to put Bela in something. He had they had to use him because he was good. He had a good reputation. Talk a little bit about what finally happened uh, with Bela Lugosi and not getting the part in Frankenstein. Well, eventually the part, as everybody knows, goes to uh, to Boris Karloff, and and he plays the monster. And Lugosi shot Murders in the Rue Morgue very shortly after Frankenstein and the film, the film did okay. It's not near in the class of the, it's not, even though it's a universal film, it's not sort of as part of the Mm. monster cycle, even though some people sort of, it's sort of an endless debate about what's part of the cycle and what isn't. Um, But he's actually terrific in it. It's actually a terrific role for Bela Lugosi. The film overall Mm. is not up to the level of of the other ones, unfortunately. It's uh, true that Boris Karloff, everyone thinks that was his first, and it was his first starring role in a sense. But man, he was a busy working actor as well as a lorry driver early on. He he didn't have any problems with hard work, it appears. No, no, he he was a... quite a busy actor he had he had toured extensively doing theater he would he was part of at various times parts of these little acting groups that would go around the country and they'd go into small towns and literally in the course of a week they do six or seven different shows and then whichever one was the most popular they'd do again on the last day and then they'd move on to the next town and you know th- this is a a great example of of where he was with his career when he made frankenstein it was is like his 88th movie that he had been in incredible 88 movies. So it's, it, he had done that much work. All of it was very short roles. Um, and one thing I sort of to give an example exactly of where he was in his career, there was a film that came out right after he shot Frankenstein. Um, he had shot the film before filming Frankenstein, but it didn't come out until afterwards. And in that film, his part is literally listed as waiter. It's not, <laughs> he doesn't even have a name. Well, so, and then, you know, he it's just literally the character's name is Waiter. And then within three months, three, four months of um, Frankenstein coming out, he's such a big star. When The Mummy comes out, his name is larger than even the title of the film. Yeah, but in the original Frankenstein, if I'm not mistaken, he's not <laughs> listed, correct? He doesn't have well, a... The, uh, he, I believe he, he was on the posters. It does say question mark, which was yeah. kind of is a little bit of, uh, <laughs> you know, to... Uh, it, it, you know, one, he wasn't famous, but two, I think it was also part of the showmanship that the Lemleys were famous for. It, it definitely added to the mystery, but that was certainly part of the fact that he wasn't known. And like I said, within months, his name is above the title, you know, of, of the films that he's in. There's so much in the book, It's Alive, that I loved. Um, and we'll, we'll jump around if that's OK. Luella Parsons. Let's talk about her. <laughs> She's the gossip queen of the late 20s, early 30s and beyond. And she p- plays a pivotal. She's always showing up at the right time or the wrong time, depending on who you are. Yeah, you know, she was a very, very powerful character of the time. Uh, I like the parallels to sort of, you know, I sort of had that Junior sort of liked her because he saw a kinship to her. That she was someone who sort of got out there and established herself. But then when other people started to have columns, she jumped onto the radio, and that was kind of the thing also about Junior. That was a little different than his father. Junior was all about embracing everything that was new. And so I sort of had a parallel with Luella where she was sort of the same way that she understood that in this modern age, you had to get the information quickly and she had radio to, to disseminate it. And she, she's a fascinating character from the time. Absolutely. You know, the movie Frankenstein holds up for all kinds of reasons. Uh, one is very physical and one is very, I think, emotional and and story born. And that is, talk about that, and that is the 
fact that this ghoulish monster created from dead parts of dead bodies, uh, you actually feel for the monster. You actually see through that makeup and all that uh, someone who's in pain and, and you're crying out for him to a certain extent. You can almost understand why he does what he does. He's forced into it. Was that uh, Wales doing for the most part? How much did Lemley have to say about the the movement of character and pathos in the monster? Um, that seems to be largely on whale, that that was the approach. And frankly, that's why the film has lasted. It would have been so easy to just make it a film about, you know, here's a bad creature, let's kill it. Instead, you have this incredible empathy and it goes back to Karloff's performance. I, I, I think it's one of the greatest performances ever in the history of cinema. When, when I watch that film, I don't see Boris Karloff in mm -hmm. the role of the monster. He just completely gets lost. Yeah. And I've watched a lot of Karloff performances. And, I mean, he's always good, but his performance as the monster is just astounding. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I wanted to talk about Jack Pierce for a second, um, the makeup master that most makeup masters of today who are knowledgeable of the past, and that's most all of them, bow to him. They revere him as the granddaddy. He was incredible. That makeup that uh, Karloff wore and Lugosi wore in the test, pretty incredible. Can you share with us a little bit of the inside look at sure. that? Sure. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons also that the film has lasted all these years. The makeup is so absolutely incredible and astounding. And Pierce was the, you know, was the head of the makeup department there, but he was the one who created that makeup, you know, after apparently several weeks of testing it with Karloff that is so famous to today. And that was one of the things in doing my research that was really fascinating to show you, though, how connected Junior Lemley was to the production of this film. There's a recording, thankfully. Um, do, do you know uh, Bob Burns, the guy who's famous for his collection of stuff? Yeah, the, the gorilla guy. I think. Right, the gorilla guy, and he has this incredible, <laughs> you know, collection of movie uh, memorabilia. I was lucky enough to tour it about ten or fifteen years ago. Um, in the early '60s, Jack Pierce appeared on a local um, television show here in LA and gave an interview. Thankfully, Bob Burns recorded the audio of it, and because there's, you know, sadly Jack Pierce died way before he got his due. Mm -hmm. And in this recording, he's asked about Frankenstein, and he literally says junior gave me the book and just the notion mm. of a head of the studio giving a book to a makeup artist i mean that's unheard of today from you know my years of of working in hollywood there was no way the head of paramount was going down to the makeup department and handing a book you know and that just showed you what you know when i saw that i it made me realize how much how important these films were to junior i think for me that makeup and maybe the planet of the apes origination of that whole world just stand apart. Uh, they're just incredible. And there's a story, and I think you mentioned it in the book, about Karloff taking his bridge in his teeth yeah. out to, to give him that sallow uh, cheek mm -hmm. look. Uh, just in, impressive. Just impressive. And it was a crazy amount of time to get into the makeup and a real tough shoot for him. Oh, he, he would be there, I believe it was three or four hours before everybody else getting the makeup on. And that is absolutely true that he took his bridge out, uh, you know, mm. to make his face even more, you know, sunken. And one of the things that people will tell you, if you look at Frankenstein and then look at Bride of Frankenstein, in Frankenstein, he was still very much a struggling actor. So his face is much more gone. By the time of Bride of Frankenstein, he'd become a star. So he's eating better. He's going to parties. Yeah. Brown so Derby. 
<laughs> yeah, he's definitely a little bit more filled out. So yeah. it's it's kind of you know that was another thing that added to how amazing he looked as Frank as 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 the monster. You are uh, Hollywood bound, so you know about this era very very much. And I wanted to ask you about what was going on beyond Universal. I mean, we know that. Talkies had just arrived in the late 20s, and you had the rise of some musicals, lots of romance and drama, and the Marx Brothers and so forth. There was a lot going on. Uh, so two questions. What was what was the main competition, if you will, for movies like Frankenstein? And how did it do at the box office in, in its rollout? Uh, well, sir, to address the first thing, it was an absolutely crazy time in Hollywood because sound movies – had just come in. Um, Frankenstein is made in 1931. The jazz singer is 1927, and that's sort of credited with beginning the sound revolution, and there is truth in it. Um, you know, by 28 and 29, uh, the studios are all making sound films, and by 1930, there's no more silent films. So there'd been this conversion, but what's really fascinating is nobody really knew what a sound film was. I mean, what what does it mean? What is the relationship that people are going to want? Maybe they just want sound effects. Maybe they just want music. So there's a lot of these sort of hybrid films that get made in this period where there's some just have sound effects, some have music. But eventually they they um, they figure out what a sound film is. And to me, it's about 1932, 1933, where if you look at those films, they would look familiar. They would look old to you. But they, the relationship of sound to the picture is what we've come to know. Now, in terms of how it relates specifically to Dracula and Frankenstein, Dracula still has touches of a silent film. Some of the makeup is of the, of the silent era, and I believe Dracula was actually released as a silent film also, hmm. that there were cuts of it that were made for some theaters in more rural areas that hadn't converted over to sound yet. I don't know if it's ever been found, but I have read that that was done, where Frankenstein is firmly a sound film. It was made only to be a sound film. And James Whale, which is something I talk about in my book, had never made a silent film. Todd Browning, who had come out of silence, had a little bit of a, you know, had been in that era. But Frankenstein is entirely a, a product of the sound era. In terms of how it did, Dracula was a big hit and Frankenstein was an even bigger hit. Mm. It was a huge hit right out of the gate. Uh, had huge runs all around the country. And like you said, Overnight, Karloff became a, a huge star. I would put, if I were comparing it to Marvel, I would make the Frankenstein Superman, not Marvel and DC, and Batman would definitely be, of course, Dracula, because <laughs> he's a bat. The paragons of monsterhood. I love these guys. Uh, this is pre-code, and for those, I'll have you explain what that means. So uh, do you think they would have been stifled uh, three or four years later when the uh, Hayes board and others got involved? Well, you know, ironically, there was some recutting of Frankenstein Dud, uh, done. Um, well, let me give the, 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 the pre-code era is 1928 to 1934. Sound starts and you have these whole collection of wonderful films that are even some of them are even racy by today's standards. Mm -hmm. um, certainly in the way they deal with sexuality, there's not, you know, the nudity isn't near what we have today in the pre-code era. But the, the sensibility, you know, you sort of have this sort of shamelessness in a wonderful way about sexuality that now comes with a little more condemnation. Um, and uh, the way it affected Frankenstein, frankly, was not some um, they there were some cuts that were done uh, for some of the subject matter, particularly the little girl, 
being thrown in the water was cut after the the initial right. release of the film uh after the pre-code era but also the whole you were talking about the line it's alive it you know after that he has a line in that sequence it was now what i i now i know what it's yeah. like to be god right that was removed mm. after the pre-code era and only uh restored to the film i believe as late as the 90s pivotal line i mean that's yeah. that's yeah. what it's all about you know the, yeah, the creation exactly. from and, just going back to it's a, the the phrase it's alive. I was having this conversation with my wife the other day, and I realized I think that that is the oldest line from a film that you can quote that everybody gets. You know how people like to throw out lines from films. Yeah, I don't think there's an earlier line from a film that is that everybody knows. I think that's the the oldest sort of viral line from a film because it's uh, 1931. I would I would agree. Even in Dracula, maybe the 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 best comeback is I don't drink wine but that's you got to really be a monster kid to know that one right and everybody people that have never seen frankenstein know what it's alive is in fact let's talk a little bit about that line and who throws it colin clive right is the actor Mm -hmm. and i've read about him a tragic life a good actor but died young and it's pretty obvious why there were some interesting personalities on that set who uh who had their own demons and monsters to contend with no question, you know, you, you it, it it helps the role so much, but boy, Colin Clive looks like he's awfully tightly wound. Mm. You know, when you watch that movie, he just, <clears throat> excuse me, he just looks really, you know, it's perfect for the role, but you get the sense that's who he, he really was. And, to you know, it's another example of, you know, if not his greatest performance, it's certainly one of uh, Clive's greatest. The It's Alive line in the script, it only appears twice. In the moment when he films it, he says it seven times. Right, right. So I mean, that's that's a that's a great example of an actor just really being in the moment, and it just you know his he's out of control in that moment, and it's wonderful to watch. Indeed, talking here again with uh, the author of "It's Alive," uh, Julian David Stone, and uh, so much about this book and so much about the story. I love. I just wanted to do a little follow up after. Frankenstein hits and it's hitting big. Boris Karloff is now an established star and he his star starts to rise while Lugosi sort of stays level and starts to dip. And then we know they, they did a few movies together, The Black Cat being the best, but uh, what was their relationship like around that time? Yeah, you know? you know, that's one of those that there's so many different opinions, you know, about there's no question that Karloff was, as you said, his trajectory was up and Bella kind of stabilized, but then began to fall. And to some extent, Karloff took some of the the thunder that clearly, you know, Lugosi was starting to get some of the attention because Universal did originally want to build up uh, Lugosi as another, you know, Lon Chaney. But then it sort of shifted over to Karloff and he seemed to be getting the better films than Lugosi. Some of it may, it may have been Lugosi's, you know, accent. But they were paired together. They did eight or nine movies together, and there's some wonderful films that they did. Like you, you mentioned, The Black Cat, The Invisible Ray, The Raven. There's a bunch of them, and they're really good. And it's fun to watch them act together. And oh, you know, it seems to be consistent that they had a very good relationship. But they they weren't buddies. They didn't seem to have anything mm. to do with each other outside of the studio. But they did get along well. And there are some fun photos from the sets. That, that, you know, of their different films that do show a level of camaraderie together, no question. Yeah, that, I've heard that too. And uh, I, I love looking through YouTube at some old footage. And one of them is 
Uh, getting back to Frankenstein for a minute, uh, Boris in makeup joking around with uh, Jack Pierce. You know, you're, you're probably familiar with this one. He's sticking his tongue out <laughs> and he's got the monster makeup. But I love the uh, – there's an interview with Lugosi in the 50s, a few years before he died, and he's got a cigar. He's coming out of a – well, they used to call them sanitariums, you know, a rehab center. Yeah. And he's so uh, – Aristocratic is the word I would like to use. He he liked the finer things. He enjoyed. I mean, he had a drug problem. We all know that, but he had that almost regal air about him uh, that that worked in Dracula. I'm not sure it worked in every other film he did. Yeah, it it, it made it hard for him sort of to be perceived as anything but, like you said, as sort of a a patrician, sort of a regal person. It was hard to imagine him as a as an everyman. Because he did sort of carry him with this, you know, sort of very stiff European way of uh, of of being, and it was wonderful for the right roles. But it just it, it it there were a lot of roles that it couldn't quite translate into. Now, now, Julian, what let's talk about what happened with Carl Lemley Jr. following Frankenstein in the early nineteen thirties. Uh, was he a Michael Cimino? Was he a, a <laughs> flame out because he just didn't capture that same magic, or what? Well, the, you know, the, he uh, so Junior makes, uh, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein, they're huge hits and the monster cycle is launched and they go on to make the mummy, the invisible man, Bride of Frankenstein. All of them are big hits. Well, Junior also was making other films and towards the, the mid 30s by 35 or 36, um, the studio started to have a little bit of trouble with some of the other films not uh, performing as well. And the film that sort of is credited with uh bringing down the studio was junior made a big production of the musical showboat and in order to finish that up they took out a bank loan and as collateral uh they put up the studio you know being basically that they if they didn't pay back the loan in six months the this hmm. this bank that put up the money could buy the studio and much to their shock that's what happened they didn't have the money to pay it back and so the the bank bought the studio and, and unfortunately uh, immediately fired uh, Carl Sr. and Jr. from yeah. the studio. Yeah, and too bad. Showboat's a pretty good film. Uh, it's a terrific era. film. <laughs> if, it, if, it, if it had a chance to come out, that money would have been able to easily pay off the uh, yeah. uh, pay off the, the loan. Ironically, it was James Whale who directed that production of Showboat also. Yeah, and, and we all remember uh, what, Gods and Monsters with Ian McKellen. And, uh, yeah, so many offshoots. And that's why I love talking with people like you, because uh, you you touched so many cultural touchstone points as we go through this. And before we wrap up and give another f- terrific plug to this great book, let's talk a little bit about you and some of the work you've done. According to your bio, you've written screenplays for Disney, Paramount, Sony, MGM. Um, you've done a play called The Elvis Test and several short-form documentaries on Frank Sinatra. So you've covered the gamut. What what have what has been some of your uh, what have been some of your highlights in your mind? Boy, <laughs> kind of all of it. You know, I, I it's I've been very blessed that I've been able to do a lot of stuff that that I felt uh, passionate about. I had a nice run in the '90s as a screenwriter, uh, and then I, I transitioned into novels. And in all honesty, I'm a little happier doing that because you can write anything. Right. You know, like, oh, I want to write a you know a book about the three days leading up to the production of Frankenstein, you know, make a historical novel of that. And I was able to do that. When you're writing screenplays, you've got a lot of other people involved. You have studio executives and producers, so you don't quite have the freedom. 
So I've enjoyed that. Um, and yeah, music has always been, you know, uh, another big passion of mine. I have a lot of, um, uh, I, I was, uh, I used to photograph rock and roll concerts in the eighties as a teenager. So I have a whole book out about that. Um, so I've done, I've done a lot of different things. Uh, all of it I, I've enjoyed immensely. JulianDavidStone.com is the website, obviously, and you can get a signed copy of It's Alive if you order it through the site. But obviously, this book is available everywhere. And great cover art. You don't need to do anything more than have the lightning bolt and the searchlights. I just love the cover art for the book. It was terrific. And finally, there are so many stories about the making of stories in Hollywood that have yet to be told. Is there another story out there that if you get a few months of free time you might want to tackle what whets your appetite when you're looking around you know i i would love to I, I am working on another another book that it's a very different subject matter but there are definitely other stories of hollywood i would love to tell and, and a lot of people have asked me you know to, uh, about a sequel to this and I, I would certainly be interested in that i have a lot of great ideas to follow these characters you know forward because they do their story continues to be very interesting it's a like I said, it's a very unusual time for Hollywood and an exciting time. And all of these characters went through the, you know, the different aspects of, of the era. I'll toss very in I'll, I'll toss in one more uh, bonus question for you. It's really sure. more of an observation. There's one scene in the book in which Lemley is brought to uh, the backyard of one of the movie moguls for a meeting, quote unquote, a game of poker that I wanted to be there just to serve the canopies. It was phenomenal. Can you describe what's happening in that scene? Sure. And, you know, it's funny you should say that because so much of, of the scenes that I wrote in this in this book, and again, it's the freedom of a book as opposed to a, a, a screenplay, they were, they were things I wanted to experience. So um, there was a legendary poker game that Samuel Goldwyn held that had all kinds of studio heads and production, you know, high-ranking production executives and i have a scene that takes place at that and i love the idea of these men who fight each other all day you know from their different little you know realms mm. and then they get together and have this poker game and and you know and yet they they're so competitive they really do want to win you know even though the the stakes are so much less and quite a bit of money was was spent at these games um and you met you know we were talking about jack pierce earlier i want you know i wanted to be you know who didn't want to be in that makeup room with Karloff oh, yeah. having that makeup put on? So I get to write a scene about it, and so I get to that's imagine great. being there. That that's so much of why I wrote this this book as a monster kid. Well, fellow monster kid here, love the book. It reads like a thriller, and it so fast. I I did it in two days, and uh, I like the way that it's, it's paced because you you lead up to the making of the film by just a couple of days. There's a lot going on <laughs> in the yeah. course of that era. I loved it. Uh, Julian, thank you for joining us. I hope that we speak again because you've got a lot to say about a lot of things and a uh, very, very creative approach to, to writing about this fabulous era in Hollywood. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me on at any time. I, I, can, I can talk about a lot of different topics. <laughs> Thanks again to the wonderful author Julian David Stone. It's alive. It's amazing. Every time I say it, lightning strikes. Do check it out. And thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to everyone at Chart Productions. Don't forget to go to my website, jordanrich.com, for much more. And until next time, hold on, I want to try this one more time. It's alive. <laughs> Son of a gun. Until next time, remember to be well so you can do good. Take care.